Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Figure Podcast. Each week we are going to figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. Hosted by George Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Char, can you believe this is happening? (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited to be here, to be finally sharing this with you i can't think of anyone better to be doing podcasts with and we get to speak to each other for hours every week this is very true which Um, we do anyway but still yeah it just it puts it in the diary every week and to create an official capacity for (laughs) the fact that we can chat for hours this is explain the concept of the podcast yes let's explain it okay each week we are going to choose one person one number and one image so by number do you mean literally a number it can be a statistic, it can mm-hmm. be, for example, the golden ratio we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. which is something I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about... Fun facts. Fun, yeah. Which I'm, I love a fun fact. <laughs> so, the fact... No pun intended. <laughs> that we can put that into, uh, <laughs> into the oh. formation of the show is yeah. great, because I think so much can be spoken about a fun fact. <laughs> And also to have to have a figure who is literally a person to talk about obviously sparks endless conversation, especially in terms of you know who they represent, what they're about, what their career is about. <laughs> and then image can be anything from literally a photograph of someone to a portrait, a painting, which um, is my area of expertise. Which having is Charlotte's studied passion. history of art, and I love it. Mm. And I don't work in art currently. I work in fintech. Yet, yet, yet. Um, yet. But I love fintech as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that through this podcast, I can talk and share all of my mm. weird and wonderful facts about various different sculptures and paintings. Absolutely, which is super interesting for me because I know <clears throat> relatively little. The, the thing that I can do is I can go to the National Portrait Gallery and I can tell you <laughs> what members of <laughs> the monarchy are in the National Portrait Gallery, and sort of who they were in terms of... Which is something that I can't do. I just love history, which is great. So other than that, I can't tell you that much about art, which is why Charlotte is going to go to town <laughs> on many a thing. <laughs> but it won't only be art. We're going to do famous photographs. We can do uh, recipes, photos of recipes. Um, we've got all sorts of ideas, and we hope that... Um, you will enjoy listening to this as much as we are going to enjoy making it Absolutely. and learning from it. This is my something that I'm so excited about for each mm-hmm. week is to come up with these numbers, people, images that we're talking about and then learn new things about them. Because after you finish your formal education, your education is complete down to you. And I still haven't got over the novelty of actually being able to choose to read which book I'm going to read next. Because also mm-hmm. being an English student... I had the longest reading list ever. I, I, I definitely fell out of love with reading a little bit at university as well. I didn't do English, I did science, but a lot of the time what you... Oh, well, actually, you probably could have figured this, but I didn't figure that actually going to uh, university to do science that I would have to read <laughs> so much. You just think you'd be wearing I a thought lab I'd be coach. in a lab for the <laughs> whole the time. Big, with the big sexy and glasses. With the, with the really sexy glasses <laughs> and also just in lectures the whole time. Yeah. Um, which actually were really interesting. But the, the amount of reading and writing mm. was astounding. Um, so, yeah, going back to my point, once you get out of education... And you can choose what you read if you want to read. Mm -hmm. I just find that so incredible. But also... It takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. But also, sometimes you can forget to do that. Because you're so free at that point. 
And now having had some time where we've been out of university, I love that this podcast is going to give us an opportunity every week to learn something new, Absolutely. read a different article, and then share it with everyone listening. Absolutely. And kind of bounce off each other. And also to explain, because I don't think we've mentioned this yet, we are each other's oldest friends. Yeah. And I, my mum introduced your parents. Yeah. And so we have literally known each other for our entire lives. We know a lot about each other, which is uh, really <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> um, and, yes. and on that note... <laughs> Let's start our first figure. Sha. <laughs> Who is our first figure on our first ever episode? Our first figure is Dame Helena Morrissey, mm-hmm. who we both love, yeah. and who brought out a book called A Good Time to Be a Girl earlier this year. Yeah. And we just thought it would be a really interesting one to discuss. Absolutely. And hear each other's thought, thoughts on it. Absolutely, because A Good Time to Be a Girl is um, sort of all about how gender equality uh, is going to help um, everyone and everything by actually increasing productivity and increasing efficiency mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. companies um, across the world. She particularly focused on the FTSE 100 Project, project. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she basically started the thirty percent club, which was this aim to get thirty uh, percent women on all boards of the FTSE one hundred, which are the kind of um, they're the most traded mm. companies on the London, on the Stock, London Exchange. Stock Exchange. So we're talking about Lloyd's, we're talking about M and S, from Burberry, you know, all of those big sort of companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, her aim was to get thirty percent women on the boards mm. so really interesting for charlotte and i to read because i don't think either of us actually knew the ins and outs of that no um not at all and it was a great it's a great book it's very optimistic it's very personal very personal um and actually i think it's very relatable which yeah. i really love because yeah. the huge criticism of helen morrissey generally in the press when you read articles mm. about her is that she is not relatable because she is seen as this superwoman she gets that label a lot mm-hmm. which i really don't think is helpful um, but I can understand why when you read about her that gets attached to her because she has nine children. Mm-hmm. She's the CEO of Newton Investment Management mm-hmm. and she's now the head of personal finance at Legal in General, in general yeah. which is a really cool role. She's basically yeah. trying to help women in particular invest and it's such a key issue. And why that will help men. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and that's the whole that's the whole onus around the book, which is awesome, is she is such a close relationship with her husband and her sons. Um and she and really her and her, of course yeah. her daughters. But also it's just to really make sure that the message is out there that we want to work together. This is not about yes. women and yes. hate men, da, da, mm-hmm. you know, it's about actually the way we're gonna get gender equality, mm-hmm. we're gonna have to get men on board. Mm-hmm. And actually it's going to help everyone. It's going Absolutely. to benefit everyone. There are benefits to having equal numbers of men and women mm-hmm. on boards of companies mm-hmm. um, and just generally in the workplace. And, and general, di- general diversity she, as yeah, well. You literally took words out of my mouth. General <laughs> diversity as well. You know, that's so important. Absolutely. Um, and she went to Oxford. Mm-hmm. She studied classics. I think that's another non-relatable aspect. Yeah, that she, um, I think that's also very much, you know, you see at Oxford and you think, oh God, well... Of course, you know, mm. that's, that's a, but she, she went to Oxford, she mm-hmm. studied classics. No um, philosophy, I think it was. Was it philosophy? Yeah. Damn, and she, <laughs> no. um, and she got two one in philosophy yeah, and she, she always says that that's a sore point because she wanted to get a first. Yeah. <laughs> 
And of course she would. I mean, someone yeah, who's CEO of, of this and... I think philosophy, though, great subject to have done. Fantastic subject. That, that comes in handy even That now. was one of my favourite parts of the book. Mm. And I actually ended up... I was reading it in New Zealand and I ended up stopping what everyone was doing and read out this whole section of the book. Mm. <laughs> because it's something that I definitely relate to in the having done humanities. Mm. You there is so much stigma attached to certain subjects, I think, and this applies, and I think that they can become very gendered. Mm, oh, totally. Growing up, I definitely felt a gender divide in subjects. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty standard, especially we grew up in the late nineties, mm-hmm. early noughties. You know, it was still very <laughs> much. I love that word. <laughs> it's horrific, isn't it? It's so weird, so but I do. Back to, like naughty seem. <laughs> What even is that? That's just my childhood. Like, what do I dress up as? It's basically Destiny's Child, and, and Brittany, I love it. Which is awesome. <laughs> it is Britney, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I still thought that the subjects were quite gendered. I definitely felt that. And I was naturally more inclined to science and maths. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still, it was all very conscious of the fact, that, oh, oh, wow, amazing to have women in science. Mm-hmm. Women in science. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rosalind Franklin was definitely... Uh, definitely a heroine of mine when I was younger. Mm. The fact that she was a woman scientist mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. exactly the issue and they that always... Helena Morris is talking about. Yes, and Sheryl Sandberg and actually Margaret Thatcher talked about this. Yes, in this amazing book yes, that I'd really, I, really I recommend need to read next. It's by Jenny Murray, and it's Twenty One Women Who've mm-hmm. Shaped British History. Yeah, and if you if you're a history fan. I would definitely recommend mm. it from what I can Really see, concise I'm, chapters, yeah. um, talks you through... I, I hadn't heard of so many women in that book, and mm. I love it when I come across Absolutely. new names. Mm. And I'm sure lots of them will become figures mm-hmm. for this podcast. Um, but there's a quote from Margaret Thatcher, and she always used to say, I'm not... A woman prime minister. I'm, prime minister. I'm a prime minister. Yeah, absolutely. and the same with Cheryl Sandberg, who oh, definitely CEO. has. I'm a woman CEO. I'm a CEO. Yes, or there will be a time in the future. There will be no women CEOs. There yeah. will only be CEOs. CEOs. Same with leaders. Any mm-hmm. leaders in the, around the world, it mm-hmm. will just be. Yeah. This is the president or the pro, you know prime minister, mm-hmm. not a female. Yes. Prime minister, and actually, even as recently as the 2016 American election. How much press and onus was on the fact yeah, that she was a woman? Exactly. I mean, it was honestly, and the same with having Theresa May as our prime yeah, minister. We're always yeah. talking about, oh, but it's great we've got a woman, a woman prime minister. Yeah, which means we have diversity, and you know, it's like okay, yes, but actually not in all areas. Mm. So, yeah. So, what was your favourite part of the book? Ooh, my favourite part of the book. Uh, definitely one of my favourite parts of the book, which I know that you also agree with, which is uh, asking her children. Mm-hmm. their opinion on gender equality mm-hmm. because you know we're talking about nine children who are raised in a family yeah where actually the traditional masculine feminine roles are challenged yes she very openly and very lovingly talks about her husband and how great their partnership is and mm-hmm. actually when she was uh i think it was after her third child or third or fourth child they decided that rich was going to her husband to stay home full time yeah and actually i think he started out working from home i think is what he started i actually mm. remember saying this in the book and i thought actually that's so relatable he decided he didn't really actually like the work office politics and thought actually i'm gonna work from home yeah uh, and he was I an think incredibly he, successful he a journalist? Journal, financial journalist <clears throat> went to trinity dublin and got a first uh, and he's also now um, 
I think a meditation teacher and a yeah. Buddhist mm-hmm. um, as well, which is so cool. Mm. Uh, and he decided that he wanted to work from home. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when more and more children came, mm-hmm. then maybe that's the thing. I think he felt that he'd got to the end of his chapter of yeah. working life in yeah. the role that he had in been that he in. Knows now. And yeah. Helena was someone who was moving forwards and yeah. up and taking on new challenges and new roles in particular when she moved from I don't think they said the name of the company did they no but her initial her initial company where she was passed over from promotion because mm. she was had her first child and then mm. they automatically assumed and told her that she wasn't showing commitment because she had had, had maternity leave yeah I think that's just so epic to to see an example like Helena Morrissey and for someone like you and I who also re- really want to have children mm. to, to actually say, well, actually, we're going to challenge the stereotype mm-hmm. and you don't have to give up your whole career and your whole life if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And you can, it's possible to do that. Mm. And I think that's so amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so empowering. It's mm. also so empowering for men. Yes. Because it means that men don't have this onus on you have to be the breadwinner, you have to earn everything. Completely. You know, it's giving just, people choice. And this yeah. is why I think that in general, and particularly in the UK, mm. it is a good time to be a girl because mm-hmm. for both men and women, we have more choice. If you want to continue with your career, then you can do that. You can have a career in the first place. Mm. And the other thing about... I was reading this book around International Women's Day, which meant that I was constantly comparing today to 100 years ago. What are your thoughts on International Women's Day? Just, just randomly, Ooh. sidebar. I really like it. I think it's a really wonderful celebration. What I really couldn't stand this year was mm. how it basically became a big marketing opportunity it's for loads of different companies. And it would say, yeah. oh, come in. Um, if you're a woman, you can come and have a free massage or you can get this deal that's for international... Healthy, that's not what International Women's Day is about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it became that. And the hype... Although last year on International Women's Day, I adore boxing and... You had a free boxing club. I had a free boxing club. And you fully took advantage And I was so happy about it, because obviously as a poor student, any opportunity to take advantage of any free thing was great. And then I I got my period that morning. (laughs) And I just thought, I'm going to be damned if I miss my free boxing class because it's on Wednesday for a bloody period. Like, no way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the name of that charity, isn't it? It's Bloody Good Period. Bloody Good Period, exactly. Yeah, really, yeah. really good. So anyway, yes, I divulge, but mm-hmm. um, absolutely, a good time to be a girl opens up those questions. It mm-hmm. opens up diversity. I think it definitely is a good time to be a girl, mm. um, and she's very optimistic in mm. how she. Mm-hmm. Right about yeah and one story that we will just finish with is that i read this um when i was in new zealand and i went caving which is really really fun mm. and you what basically okay so you zip yourself so, so literally in a cave you're literally in a cave so yeah a cave i imagine a cave huge dark probably with water running through it yeah that's pretty much it are there sort of scary eels and sharks yeah you can't see very much and you have to jump backwards at some points which was quite Yikes. scary. Okay. Um, but I just trusted that hundreds of people have done it before, so I'm probably going to be fine. That's good logic. I don't mm. know if I'd have that. Mm. Yeah. So you zip yourself <laughs> up into a wet wetsuit, which is um, a struggle, and then you are given this kind of rubber ring, mm-hmm. and then you go into the caves, and you're kind of taught how to do it. You have a little training session, but you not s- much. Did you sit with your like, bum in the ring? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then you have your kind of knees 
out. Yeah. Um, and you kind of walk and swim and float through the caves. But what makes it so incredible is that they're just full of glowworms. So you've got kind of sapphire, emerald, ruby, awesome. ruby lights, which are all above you. Mm. And it's basically like being under a kind of rainbow starry night. And it's just so beautiful. Mm. It's incredible. But my overriding thought which was because I was reading this book and it had been International Women's Day very recently and I'd been reading a lot about that and thinking about it was that the group I was with happened to be all girls mm. there wasn't a single guy which is quite unusual because normally it's quite an adventure thing and the guides were quite surprised that it was 11 girls and so was this was this a sort of planned tour yeah we just we signed up and yeah. um and we all decided you know we all wanted to do it mm. and what I really loved is that there were people from all different countries there mm. most of us were in our early 20s mm. and we were on the other side I, of the world I think there's something about being in your early 20s that does bond you with other people in your early 20s I think it's a really interesting time because you kind of just don't know what you're doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> well I think that that would continue in lots of different aspects oh, true, of your life but I think you do bond you know you do especially when um you know on a gap year which we, we both took gap years after university um you know, you meet a lot of other people yeah. that are doing the same and kind of trying to figure it out. And trying to figure it out, exactly. Hence the name yeah. of this podcast, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So it yeah. was incredibly bonding. Yeah. But, yeah. but so this moment was we all linked arms and legs together mm. when we were sitting in our rubber rings and we were going underneath the glowworms and it was just stunning. And I thought, how amazing. What an incredible time to be a girl in the country that gave women the vote for the first time. We're 100 mm. years on for the Brits in the group and just how lucky are we that we can a we're able to do this and adventure and explore and experience it all together and then just be physically linked to all of these other girls. Sort of a moment girls. you realised that actually 100 years ago you probably wouldn't have been given that opportunity. No way, there's no way. You wouldn't have been able to do any aspect of that. Mm. And I think Even it's 50 years ago, 40 years yeah. ago. Yeah, and I think it's really important to sometimes be positive and look back at how far we've come and I think that a good time to a girl to be a girl really does that. The second figure we're going to be talking about is our statistic or number. Mm -hmm. And this week, we've only had one week, <laughs> week, this week, we are going to be talking about the fact that capital punishment is still legal in 58 countries. Out of 195. Yes. Was also, I didn't realise there are 195 countries, but now I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this is about 30% of all countries in the world have capital punishment. Um, and that ranges for crimes such as murder, manslaughter um, in the US mm -hmm. um, and obviously other parts of the world, but also... Drug trafficking in Bali. Drug-related crimes. Indonesia in general. Which I think is where my controversy um, definitely started, whereas mm. I couldn't understand why that was the case. Mm -hmm. I also can't believe how little I knew about the death penalty and capital punishment in general until we decided to talk about this on our podcast. Mm. And even though we've had so many conversations over the years, because as anyone who knows G, she will probably have asked you what your opinion of the death That's penalty is. Most definitely. Because it is your... It's my conversation starter. So anytime... <laughs> Uh, the conversation goes silent. Uh, I don't know anyone else who has a conversation starter that is the death it, penalty, but it's, it's, it actually creates it some fascinating it conversations. all of the conversation. And mm. the other day I went into work, I asked everyone around me what they thought of the death penalty. We had a 40-minute conversation about it. Everyone had different opinions. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is it's just, it's one of those things that's very normalised, part of the legal system, that actually, it's just weird to punish someone who's committed a murder with killing them. Yeah, 
And it's this eye for an eye attitude mm. makes the world blind. Absolutely. And I think from a young age, I just thought, I can't really understand that. Mm. I don't know why that's the case. Do you remember how old you were when you started thinking about it or found out about it? I think probably, probably when one of the first cases I heard about it was, you know, it was probably by hanging or lethal injection. Yeah. And um, learning what cyanide was okay. and things like that. So it was quite scientific. I just it. I just couldn't believe there was a clinical way of killing someone. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe you could take a person mm. and actually do that to them, mm-hmm. um, no matter what crime they had committed. Mm. So ever since then, I always used to ask people mm-hmm. what they thought about it. Yeah. Um, so do you think that there are any situations in which it is justifiable to ask a controversial question? <laughs> but let's try and do both sides. Uh, so I don't believe the death penalty in any circumstance. Um, I believe this quite strongly. I I am also... Uh, yeah, I don't believe that at all. However, I can empathise. Mm. Someone murdered you, for example, or any one of my family. Mm-hmm. The fact that they were still... Can we al- touch wood? Of course. <laughs> the fact that they were still alive would make me feel very uncomfortable. Mm. And actually, it's such a horrific thing, but that is a reality for mm. you know a few people in the world if they've had people that have been taken from them by people who have killed them, mm-hmm. that's horrific. And mass murders, I think, in particular, is um, a topic that I think Obama has spoken about um, in recent years. And I think some states in America have that as one of the circumstances in which they the mm. death penalty is the punishment. Mm. And I just think it's so complicated and... It's so individual, but then at the same time, my view is that you can't be individual about something like this, and that you... I think that if globally no country had the death penalty, it would be a better situation for everybody, ultimately. Mm. Mm. And I listened to such an interesting podcast called The Why Factor on the death penalty, and it was interviewing um, guards who've had... Yes, this yeah. was so interesting. You sent it really to me. Really good. Really and re- very balanced and very they're 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 actually very measured in their opinions mm. um in it. And actually it's very interesting because obviously they did this job for you know 30 mm-hmm. years. And actually, I think at the end of the podcast, which we will link um in the podcast description, they actually disagree with it. Yeah, they They actually say I actually don't think that that's mm-hmm. the fairest the way guards to do, do it. Yes. They guard, the guards disagree with it. Even though they would, they don't feel bad about what they no. carried out, they just said, actually, I don't see how this is benefiting anyone. Yes, and Amnesty International has brought out such mm. brilliant Extensive research, research. Saying that it isn't a deterrent at all. Because, But also Amnesty International um, are crucial because they investigate uh, the death penalty in areas of the world where it's not just as clear-cut as mass murder. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about drug trafficking here, we're talking about people who may um, commit a crime that in the country that they're from is mm. considered capital punishment worthy, whereas mm-hmm. we would think that was completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. In China, um, is actually the country that carries out the most capital punishment. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And actually, it's uh, most of them are state secrets, so they haven't actually released mm. the amount of mm. uh, deaths yeah. by the government but, but we would assume that that would be much higher than, than anywhere else in the world because they don't really have yeah crazy and then the other article that. that was really interesting that uh, we both read in relation to this was about 
Kenya, is it? Okay, so um, my colleague Hugo um, was one of the people who was involved in our conversation at work about uh, the death penalty. And we had a long conversation about it. His view is also one of our views, which is actually it's kind of worse for someone who's committed a murder to sort of live out the rest of their life in, in a tiny cell mm. than to actually be put to death. Mm-hmm. And that's a worse punishment. And what I also found out that. is that it's cheaper. What than the death penalty? Yeah, because capital... Like, the way that they do it oh. in America is incredibly expensive. Mm, and it's actually, it depends on the age of the... And lifetime punishment mm. is less expensive than killing someone god that's horrific i know yeah. really shocking i wasn't i was so surprised by that mm, i'm surprised by that because mm. i thought one of the arguments is is actually you know in terms someone of living in, yeah, yeah, someone yeah living in prison and taking mm. up that time and that but it's know, not interesting but well yeah, so, yeah. anyway so he found it was probably a few hours later and it was at lunch and he said here's an article for you and it was this uh article in the independent which we will link below um, and that was talking about how poachers in Kenya were going to be sentenced to death because they had killed a rhino, mm-hmm. I believe. And rhino is one of the most endangered mm-hmm. species in the world. Um, and in Kenya, they have many animals that are very endangered. Yeah. And for years, they have they have issues with poachers all the time. Mm. Africa as a continent, obviously, Absolutely. has so, number yeah, issues, huge it. numbers of issues. And they've had fines and imprisonment, and actually yeah. none of that's working. Yes, so, so do we know when that's actually coming into effect? I think the bill was passed in 2016 for it to become a law. It hasn't okay. become a law yet. Um, Interesting. But those people will, uh, will face that mm-hmm. But then I think ultimately, is that poacher doing it to support their family? Or mm. why, why are they doing that in the first place? Mm. And isn't it better to go back to that root of why are you going to become a murderer rehabilitation. or a poacher. Rehabilitation. And again, brilliant TED talk that I listened to by David mm. Dow, who has defended over 100 people, I think it is, on death row. Mm. And he talks about individual cases um, and talks about how the best situation for everybody that no one can argue with is for the murder or the crime to never happen in the first place. And what can we do mm. to intervene at an earlier stage? Absolutely. And he talks all about how so many people who end up on death row come from very similar backgrounds. Absolutely. It's a um, whole social, social mobility thing, mm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A, lot of these, a, lot, a lot of the backgrounds of the criminals who um, are very very similar. Yeah. You know, low socioeconomic backgrounds and, and actually what, a lot of the time the crimes they're committing mm-hmm. may not necessarily be premeditated, it may escalate that mm-hmm. way. Um, and the rehabilitation argument that he's talking about in the mm. sense that it should never happen in the first place is we're trying to prevent that from happening again. Yes. Um, and in general, prevention is the first cure. But sadly, one of the things that we have been thinking about the last couple of weeks is a few Mondays ago, Charlotte and I went to a recording of The Guilty Feminist, which is one of our favourite podcasts ever. It's an incredible show, very funny, lots of comedy, uh, incredible guests. Mm-hmm. And right at the end... Um, one of the guest panellists named Yasmin Abdel Magid, who is a engineer, broadcaster, writer and activist. And she was born in Sudan, but raised in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was great, very funny. Mm-hmm. But she did bring this issue to light, um, which we were all incredibly horrified by. Yeah. Um, so I want to just put that out there. This is a horrific story. And the reason that we're talking about this is if 5, 20, 50 more people know about this story than and they sign did. a petition 
and sign the petition to to stop it than they did before listening to this podcast, mm. then our you know job is done in the sense that we want to raise awareness. Even if yeah. one more person knew about this, yeah. that's what we want. So And yes, yeah, so to that point, I actually just wanted to read out this section from an interview with Pandora Sykes, who's another one of our favourite podcast co-hosts of The High Low. And she interviewed Deborah Francis White, who does The Guilty Feminist. And I'll just read this out because I think it's really important and it hopefully communicates what we are trying to do. You are included about as much as a woman can be included in that she is a middle-class white blonde woman. And the question is, how much can you include other women who aren't as included as you? Mm. And this is where we'd really like to talk about these causes that we're really passionate about and in particular women who we feel that we can help in any Mm. way that we can. Mm. And if this story resonates with you, then please do sign the petition. We're going to link it in the show below before. But G, if you want to explain what has happened. Yes, so the story is about... um, a woman named Nora Hussein, who uh, is from Sudan, and even though Sudan in Sudan it is technically um, illegal to have child marriage against their will, mm-hmm. she was forced into marriage at the age of sixteen to um, a much older man that her father had arranged, um, and she ran away, uh, and she fled to her aunt's house, and she lived there for about three years. Her father eventually convinced her to return and said that you don't need to marry this man we're going to call it off it's fine just come home but actually she was tricked and when she came home it all had been arranged and she was forced into marriage anyway so she was then handed over to her husband and her husband's family and that was that so after refusing to consummate her marriage um she was held down by a number of members of his family and raped And this happened the following day as well. And eventually he, um, in the process of raping her, she managed to escape and she managed to find a knife Mm -hmm. um, in close proximity to where the event was taking place. And she basically threatened to stab him if he came closer to her. And he did. She stabbed him. He then, um, I think, died. He died he of died. his wounds later he on. He died um, yeah. from his wounds, from his stab wounds. And essentially, Nora has been sentenced to death on the 10th of May because so, of premeditated so, murder. Yeah. So her family disowned her, handed her over to the police, and the judge passed the death sentence on to Nora um, because... They accused her of premeditated murder, which is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. This is a case of someone was forced into marriage against their will, one. Two, was raped. And also that was assisted by a number of his family. Mm-hmm. And she was acting in self-defense. Yeah. And I think the most, the, one of the most tragic things that I find about this is that in this article, which we will also link, it says that his family decided not to take compensation yes i and think there was a choice tried. yeah i think there was a choice whether she, they could take monetary compensation mm-hmm. or she could be tried for, mm-hmm. mur- for premeditated murder which the uh i think the sentence for that is that there's the mm. death sentence so on the 10th of may 2018 which was 10 10 days ago now mm. she was sentenced to death by hanging and i was just i was incredibly mortified 
angry, moved by this story. Mm, And I just want to encourage everyone here to please stop this podcast now, (laughs) click on the link that is below and sign this petition and please share it on your social media and do whatever you can. Because in the next few days... This will be the limit of her lawyers to repeal this. Yeah, her lawyers have and had a limited a, amount of time. This is a situation to re- where you appeal. think if the death penalty didn't exist, we wouldn't have this scenario. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, and I guess just to end on one positive note is that I think in today, and I guess this relates to a good time to be a girl in a really horrible way, but at least we actually can do something. We can say this right. is wrong. We right. can say this is justice for Nora. We can sign this petition, and mm-hmm. social media can be such. It's such an extreme platform. I think it has lots of downsides, but I also think that something about social media is that we can share these causes. Okay, so what is our third figure? Our third figure is The Kiss by Rhoda, which is a sculpture that we both saw one copy of in the exhibition that's currently at the British Museum, which is brilliant. So are there... So the okay, so just to backtrack, mm-hmm. the kiss is a sculpture. Yes, of a kiss. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the image will be on the Figure Podcast Instagram, um, so you can see it there. But you can also Google it; it's very famous, very very famous. And you say one version. Mm-hmm. How many versions are there in total? I think there are over 300 copies of this Incredible. sculpture. Incredible. And I know that over 300 bronze copies were made in his lifetime. Wow. Which is crazy. And in some ways a really interesting aspect to his sculpture that I didn't really know anything about until I did an essay when I was at school. And I was basically comparing um, works by my great uncle, who was a sculptor, called Hugh Lorimer. And I was looking at his work in relation to the Renaissance. And Rodin came into this because my great uncle did a technique called direct carving, which is basically where you don't make a clay model before, you just di- directly carve is, the stone. Is a clay model, is that norm for sculpting? Um, it's sculpting? What, is it sculpting? Sculpting, yeah. Sculpting, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's what lots of artists and sculptors will choose to do. To make, so they make it in clay, is that to sort and of... And then they copy it in marble. Because doing okay. working in clay means that it's very malleable mm-hmm. and it's an additive process in that you can change and move. Is clay the thing that you do with Pottery Club? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Love clay. Yes. Love clay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you can move it, you can mould it into yes, whatever absolutely. you want. Whereas it to with be. marble you absolutely can't. No. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And what um so what I discovered when I was doing this was that uh Rodin made lots of copies of his sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I'm so grateful about that because mm-hmm. it means that there are lots and lots and lots all over the world. Mm. And there is a copy in marble in the Tate Modern. So for anyone in London, you can go and have a look at that normally. It's actually in Japan at the moment. Mm. But if you haven't been to the Tate Modern and seen this sculpture, I would definitely it recommend is, it. It's, it's inc- so beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. And it's also very... Um, when you're looking at it, it, it does just strike up a lot of... Gosh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sort of jealous of her, in a way. <laughs> I mean, he's really hot. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, he's just, got a really good back. He's got a really good back and body, and just generally. Um, and they're really going for it, which is <laughs> quite funny to see in, in a sculpture, because you, yeah. you don't often see that. And, and, and just to backtrack a bit, who is Rodar? 
And why is he significant uh, as an artist and as a sculptor? So Rodin is a French sculptor. Mm-hmm. Um, Auguste Rodin. Auguste Rodin, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was part of the Belle Epoque, which is the beautiful era. What, um, so, so by beautiful era, is that in France? It's, it's the, that... Yeah, it's the label that is given to um, lots of the artists, the Impressionists, mm-hmm. um, working in and around Paris mainly. Okay. And it goes from about 1870-ish until the start of the First World War. That's okay. the way that it's kind of defined. Okay. And by beautiful era, it, was that just because there was a lot of... Um, it was a period of really beautiful art. Just a period basically. of really beautiful art. There wasn't... Um, was there a particular movement in which everyone was sort of... It was a style or a there trend people were There were all sorts of isms that okay. occur within mm-hmm. that time. Um, and the one that Rodin is most commonly associated with is called symbolism. Mm-hmm. And it's just such an interesting movement. It's so diverse. And it involved sculptors and painters and um, just a huge wide range of different people. But the main things about it were obviously symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, but also this idea of the power of emotion. Yes, and definitely from the kiss. Mm-hmm. When you look at it, you feel, you know, all sorts of things. I mm-hmm. mean, we touched on slight jealousy there. But, <laughs> but, but, but you just feel as though you can almost feel what it's like to kiss something yes. or someone. Like, so this you... is an interesting question. Mm. When we went to this exhibition... The word that they used was voyeuristic, okay. which is a French word, and it means to look on, look up, upon something, basically. Mm. And it's something that lots of feminist art historians in particular talk about, um, quite often in relation to Impressionist work, and in particular Edgar Degas, who did the, the paintings and the drawings of ballet dancers. Deg- yeah, of course. And prostitutes. It was, that was stunning. And is that sort of going on the notion of when you're looking... So I'm looking at them kissing, mm-hmm. and my instinct is, I shouldn't be looking. Yes, exactly. So that's voyeurism. Okay. And Degas is talked about because he... The perspective that is used for lots of his drawings mm. is called the keyhole perspective. Mm. And I love that. That's yeah, so true. it's very interesting. Um, and I, God, I, when I found out about it, I was actually really disappointed <laughs> because I really, really loved Dega, but mm. he was actually lots of evidence to show that he was a real misogynist yeah. and that he, he actually says, I saw women as animals. Gosh. Mm. Oh my gosh. But anyway, so, um, they <laughs> use this word voyeuristic in that we are outsiders and we're watching these two people yeah. kiss, but I actually don't really like that word in association with this um because i really i feel like we're sharing this beautiful moment between these two people that's interesting because i don't i mm. think that i'm watching this through a keyhole and that i should probably you stop probably watching. shouldn't be there yeah I could okay stop watching now yeah because i think that maybe one of the reasons i feel that is that it's the circular motion that I feel Rhoda has put into this sculpture is really encouraged. And it's almost as though... And I think Donatello, who was an amazing Renaissance sculptor... So was he a sculptor around the same time as Rhoda? No, no, no. So the Renaissance is the, like, 1500s. Okay. And that was in Florence. Mm. Da Vinci. Yes, exactly. So Da Vinci was after Donatello. And Renaissance is new birth. Mm Mm-hmm. Means the new birth. And that was bringing back... Um, Greek and Roman sculptures, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Rodin was also trying mm-hmm. to do. I remember so it from actually learning about the history of medicine because it was one of the first times that artists 
were actually uh, looking at the human body and actually cutting open human bodies yeah. and, and actually discovering what they look like mm-hmm. and then portraying that to people mm-hmm. who had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Renaissance, um, they talk about the Renaissance man, which is Leonardo mm-hmm. da Vinci, mm-hmm. and how he... Complete genius. Yeah, was a polymath. And yeah. he was... As, also a vegetarian <laughs> as brilliant <laughs> says the girl wearing her <laughs> um, and I'm wearing my avocado shirt just in case anyone <laughs> wanted, was wondering <clears throat> yes um, he was brilliant at science maths but also sculpture and mm. art and mm. yeah and also drawing the human body yeah. which was um, transformational in medicine anyway we've got sidetracked what was I talking about Oh, about why Madonna, you don't Madonna. agree with why that's a voyeurism. Yeah, um, so something that Donatello's sculptures quite often, I feel, encourage you to do is to walk around them mm-hmm. because of the way that he's positioned mm. the bodies. Yes. And I think that this is what Rodin's managed to do. And when you're seeing this sculpture, which is larger than life... Absolutely. It is so beautiful and you just want to keep on walking round and round and round and see it from every single angle. So that's what I really love about this. Question, why, uh, when I look at it, do I think that it's almost a stolen moment? Very good question. I mean, it feels it feels as though... So, like, the intensity behind it. Very intense. Mm. And immediately I'm thinking, who are these people? Why mm. are they kissing so passionately? Mm-hmm. What's the backstory behind the kiss? So this is... The kiss was supposed to be part of the Gates of Hell, which was Rodin's kind of huge life work that took up almost or over 20 years of his life mm. and lots of his famous sculptures such as the thinker and the three shades and all sorts of other sculptures were initially and originally and are still part of the gates of hell which was mm. i don't think ever finished um so the kiss was supposed to be part of this because it is two characters from dante's inferno called paolo and francesca who was dante in so Dante was a writer in the Renaissance. Okay. Um, and he wrote this long epic tale. And these are two of the characters that are described in that. And so Francesca was actually married to Paolo's brother. Okay. So she is, so they're sort of, they've so that's fallen her, in love her, even though she's married to her brother. Yeah, she's yes. married to his brother. Yes. Okay. And they fell in love reading tales of courtly love. Mm-hmm. And he's actually holding a book. So if you yeah. go and see the sculpture, look out because you can, you see, can the book, see the book, which is obviously a reference yeah. to this. Yeah, of course. And it's interesting that you want to know more about them because in some ways I know what you mean, but in others I think that it can actually, it becomes a symbol of love and of passion yeah. and emotion. The sculptures that are generally on display and certainly in public places, they are very regimented and they're very formal. Yeah. And for Rodin to Forward be... Forward-facing. yeah. Yeah. And for Rodin to be displaying these incredibly expressive emotional sculptures is mm. just such a beautiful, no wonderful thing. No matter where thing. you look at it, it's still going to be a mm-hmm. different perspective, whereas something like a statue of a, you know, of a mm-hmm. king or queen, you just see it from the front and it's there. And yeah, in answer to your question of why was he significant, I think this, mm. is, this emotion aspect of it is huge. Yeah. Um, one other question I have as a non-history of art person, um, well... I may become a history of art person in this process. <laughs> um, is so you say that he models, or he, a lot of sculptors model their sculptures in clay. Mm-hmm. How do they get it then from clay to marble? Okay, so there's two aspects because 
clay is the original model you material yeah. that Rodin used. Yeah. So he would model the original so the original kiss was done in clay. It was then his assistants that sculpted it in marble and recreated it. So do they do that by copying the clay version? By copying the clay version, yeah. And several of his assistants, one of them, the most famous was Camille Claudel. And there's been a lot of media and articles around this recently in that she wasn't necessarily given the recognition that she should have had. And I think in general, people only discovered how many assistants and how much work the assistants did so he sculpt- when he died. Okay, so he sculpts in clay and then his assistants carve it in marble. Mm-hmm. And Rodin obviously did use chisels himself as well. But so how does a- that work? So literally... It's just, it's a copy. Side by side. Mm-hmm, I think so. Okay. Um, but then the other part of how does it get from clay to bronze mm-hmm. um, is really interesting. So they basically, it's called the lost wax method. And this was okay. developed in Greece. The Romans also used it. Mm-hmm. And you put a layer of wax over the clay and then you put another layer and then you melt the wax. So it basically creates this cavity and then you pour the bronze into this cavity so that it then keeps the shape of the original clay so the clay is underneath the bronze yeah and then i think it's all chipped away i'm not entirely sure how that works but it's you know very scientific very technical process i think that rodan would have had help with assistance on that as well Uh, yeah Mm. yeah oh how interesting Mm. i really didn't know that i Mm. didn't realize that that's how the process worked i so i yeah i learned about that at school but the other thing in relation to this image and sculpture that I've learned about recently was in my dissertation which I did on the kiss by Klimt so another kiss and something that I discovered was why are these images of kisses so popular Mm. this was my question and I did it on one painting but I looked at other images of kisses as part of this I think this was just romance and a romantic image in general yeah it's very popular so it's it's very because it's very personal and it's Mm -hmm. also very uh quite genuine and people mm-hmm. just are very nosy and they kind of want to know <laughs> they want to know what it's about and why that they're, they're, they're there yes. and, and, and you're just sort of drawn to it and you feel There's an a connection. emotional connection yeah to it. absolutely mm. but something that i looked into was um a process called what's well, their mirror neurons in your brain so basically if you're looking at an image of people kissing mm. your brain reacts in the same ways if you were actually kissing so That's so interesting and also makes sense for the kiss mm-hmm. that is in this sculpture here but if you think about the hormones that are released when you kiss it's mm. oxytocin which is the bonding hormone mm. dopamine which is this kind of very addictive and warm kind of Absolutely. happiness serotonin also happiness related and adrenaline which is the kind of excitement of it gosh what a what a cocktail of yeah of hormones yeah yeah and so if you have those hormones being released when you look at images of something then of course you're going to become attached to that image mm. because of the way that that is absolutely being processed your in your brain to it. yeah um and i just found that fascinating and looking at how lots of really famous photographs or the most popular painting from a particular sculpt sculptor or um painter so edvard munch was another example of this he was the one who the scream yeah so he did the scream but he also did a kiss oh, um know. and it's really gorgeous um what are the other really famous ones Roy Lichtenstein, who was a mm. pop artist in the 1950s, I think. But yeah, I just found it really interesting looking at how these images become so popular and then the psychology and the scientific 
exp- I don't want to say explanation because it's really hard to actually know if this is the case. That leads me on to my question. What has been your best kiss and why? Almost passionate kiss. But I think let's go with best kiss. Okay, best kiss. I think there have been more than one. Is that allowed? That's good. Yeah, that's good. Thank God. I have been kissed more than once. Um, <laughs> um, okay, I think... Maybe twice? <laughs> I mean, just twice. That's it. Um, okay, there was a very passionate kiss. Most of them had taken fr- place in front of other people. <laughs> Unfortunately, that happened. Yes. <laughs> one of them was by the Thames in London. One of them... Mm-hmm was in a taxi and poor taxi driver <laughs> um, yep and it was a particularly good one bringing it back to florence when i was 16 and it was in florence and i ended up kissing someone who looked like marlon brando or at least i think he looked like marlon brando i'll never know but True. that was maybe the most attractive person you've ever kissed i've ever kissed but i mean i don't know that my memory is serving me right there what would um, your most passionate kiss be? Um, well, going on the theme of alcohol, which I'm assuming the Florence <laughs> thing, um, I think the alcohol-infused uh, kisses have been my most passionate because it definitely means that you do not care what anyone is thinking around you. Um, and I would say... Um, oh, wow, that's ironic. The <laughs> boy in question is actually calling me now. Um, he... <laughs> He basically got very, very, very drunk and any time that he caught my eye, he would come and essentially that type of passion, that type of kiss... I love that, though. That snog that you see in the kiss, it was exactly... Recreated at Glastonbury. And every one of our friends could not look at it. It was as if it was like... It, looked like our, it feels like our parents are kissing right now. <laughs> um, and we still, to this day get made fun of for that so i think that's i think probably, that's a pretty good thing to be I think, made fun of i think that's i'd rather be made fun of for <laughs> kissing in front of people than for never kissing ever well there you go and also if you've never kissed you've got that to look forward to so let's round <laughs> off the episode <laughs> of kissing um thank you so much for listening to our first episode this has been so exciting and for so us. much fun um and we just want to say a massive thank you to t for being an incredible producer please follow him um, at century p and external complex we're going to link all of that in our show notes and on our instagram and twitter pages so which is at him. figure podcast at nova figure podcast. just figure podcast and if you would like to send us an email we are the figure podcast at gmail.com mm, please send us emails we would love to hear from you all um, we'd love to hear any figures that you would like us to speak yes, about yes absolutely Please any suggest. questions we yes. will attempt to answer them yeah we'll attempt to answer them all we want to know what you think and also i think most importantly please sign the justice for nora petition change.org change.org justice for nora justice for nora i think that would be the takeaway message of today's episode until next week until next week